Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains some adult language and some spoilers for Emily in Paris. Hello, this is The Review, a podcast from the Atlantic's culture team about movies, television, and all the things we make to entertain ourselves. I'm Sophie Gilbert, or Sophie Gilbert, aujourd'hui, a staff writer at The Atlantic, and I'm joined today by two other staff writers on our culture team, Megan Garber. Hello. Hello. Happy New Year, Spencer Kornhaber. Hola. This is the first podcast of 2022. Woo! Nothing to say about that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm dead inside. I have nothing to say about that. (laughs) Uh, It's really nice to be back chatting with you guys. I missed you over the break, even if today the subject is something I have very ambivalent feelings about. (sighs) Today we are talking about Emily in Paris. The premise is there in the name. This is the most literal show I think I've ever seen. (laughs) (laughs) Emily is in Paris. Or is Emily in Paris? Uh, I think it's Paris. I heard that there was supposed to be a rhyme and I I reject that reality. (laughs) You don't speak French. Fake it till you make it. Emily in Paris follows Emily Cooper, a young marketing executive played by Lily Collins. As part of a last-minute opportunity at work, Emily moves from Chicago to Paris. She doesn't speak the language. She doesn't understand the customs. She is charmed by France. And with notable exceptions, France is vaguely charmed by her. (laughs) (laughs) Emily makes friends. She has triumphs and failures. She eats croissants. She gains a bazillion Instagram followers by posting pictures of herself in front of the Louvre, which, you know, has never worked for me. So I respect the hustle. (laughs) (laughs) Mostly she enjoys Paris as only an American can. And of course, everything is there on Instagram. So the show has been a hit. I mean, Netflix tends to exaggerate viewer or not exaggerate necessarily but i think it qualifies a viewer as someone who watched for maybe 30 seconds of episode one um and according to that the show has been a hit but it's also been divisive 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 you can pronounce anything any way you want is one of the messages of this show so (laughs) it's true let me apologize for speaking english i did rosetta stone on the plane but it hasn't kicked in yet So this is what we are here to talk about today, because I think we all disagree in myriad and hopefully fun ways. So Emily in Paris, Megan, what do you think? 
Oh, that's a big question. I guess I would make a distinction between the first season and the second season. So the first season, I absolutely hated. And I really <laughs> wanted to like it is the thing. That's, I wanted escapism. I wanted a you know, frilly meringue of a show. I wanted a confection set in beautiful Paris. And the show sort of gave that, but it also gave like an American in Paris who just sort of inflicts her Americanness on <laughs> everyone. And everyone else learns from her and she learns precisely nothing from anyone else. And, you know, the escapism that I hope for in my mind, never came. And it really left me disappointed. I do think, though, in the second season, I think they've taken some of the criticisms to heart. I think that the show got a lot better, a lot more nuanced, a lot more complex. It gave a lot more um, agency to the French characters, which um, changed things a lot for me. So, you know, first season, hated, hated, hated. Second season, (laughs) ambivalent. (laughs) What about you, Spencer? Yeah, I was going to say, Spencer, please explain your fandom of this show. (laughs) Okay, you're outing me as a fan. Explain yourself. (laughs) Thinking back to my first uh, encounters with this show, I believe I became aware of it from Sophie DMing me and telling me that this is a show filled with attractive people that I should watch. Not to put you on blast, but I think that. that is how it started for me. And like a lot of people in 2020 when this premiered, kind of heard about it as this cringe watch phenomenon before I actually watched it and watched it and I cringed, but I watched (laughs) it. I watched the entire season very quickly. And then I found myself and my friends going back and rewatching portions of the season throughout the coming year of, you know, political crisis and virus variants and just being really bored. Uh, (laughs) It really is like the one Netflix era show that I feel like I have gone back to just to uh, soothe various anxieties and waste time and make fun of what's on my TV, but also appreciate it. Um, Season two, I also devoured very quickly. And so even though I cringe at the show a lot, I refuse to say that I don't like it because I watch it. And if you don't like what you watch, that means that you are an incoherent person and we are past (laughs) that era of guilty pleasure. So I will not I will not really apologize for the show, even though I bet in the course of this conversation, I will apologize for it a lot. I'm glad that you mentioned the idea of the guilty pleasure, because I don't think we should feel guilt for finding things pleasurable. My, my difficulty with Emily in Paris is I don't find it pleasurable. I'm I'm cringing too hard. And, and I have to say I have the opposite experience to you, Megan. Season one, I was able to really enjoy. Um, I think Entertainment Weekly described it kind of perfectly as a five-hour brain vacation. And at Mm -hmm. the time, you know, no one had been anywhere. It was October 2020 when season one came out. No one had been anywhere in a bazillion years. And or if they had, we all frowned. But <laughs> and so the idea of just being in Paris and not thinking about COVID and Instagramming croissant and making eyes with Lucas Bravo just, just seemed very fun. And it was a delightful kind of aesthetic experience. And and to watch the show, it really is like all the accounts you follow on Instagram and you kind of hate them, but the, but everything's beautiful and tailored and immaculately curated and everyone's stylish and skinny and sparkly and um but season two I have just absolutely hated my life (laughs) while watching it um and I think I think it's the literalism I think it's the fact that no person in this show has any kind of characteristic beyond the things that they're doing it's always like okay I mean can you say a single thing about Emily like she likes her job she works hard she takes Instagram pictures she wears stupid clothes like is there anything more to her than that either of you 
Wait, so you want interiority? That, that's Not interiority, but I, if, if, I mean, Darren Starr created the show and he's obviously the man behind Sex and the City and Beverly Hills 90210 and, and Younger. And, and these were shows that for all their flaws had recognizable characters within them, like people who are complex human beings with lives and dreams and flaws and hopes and, you know, passions beyond gaining following and getting promotions and moving back to Chicago and, you know, marrying boring finance bro boyfriends. So, (laughs) and I I think this is just what I'm really missing in in season two is like no character has anything governing them. I think Emily's French boss, Sylvie is kind of, you know, spiteful and has cigarettes. (laughs) (laughs) Gabrielle is a chef who's opening a restaurant. Like what, what, okay, defend, defend the show, Spencer. What do you, well, I don't think that this is a show with a lot of emotional content. And I think that the pleasure of the show is kind of watching these projections of ideas and cultural aesthetics and stereotypes interact with each other on a surface level. But there is a little bit of character motivation for these people. Like, the chef Gabriel is sort of an arrogant prick who, I mean, we love him, but he is driven by his passions for um, for Emily, for one thing. But also the conflict of season one was that he really wanted to follow his own, he wanted to be independent. And th- even if that meant leaving Paris and opening a restaurant elsewhere. Hot chef is leaving Paris and he's single. He's buying a restaurant in Normandy and Camille doesn't want to move, so he's going alone. You know, and then Sylvie, who's hilarious to watch, she kind of screws things up this season by sleeping with her clients and the people she works with. And it, and it's a weird thing to see humanized and sympathize with on television in 2022. But if we're talking about emotions and, and, and desires, interiority, I, 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 there, are, there are little glints of it. But I, I agree with you that you basically have no sense that Emily has any sort of feelings of her own other than kind of like she loves to run and get her fitness tracker numbers up, add things to her resume and take Instagram posts mostly for the likes, like for sure. I, what's so frustrating to me about this show is that it, it I think, wants to engage so many interesting questions. Like it's, you know, it's set in this world of image management. It's set in this world of branding, of fantasy, of manufactured illusion and desire, right? And like that already is such an interesting setting for a show, especially a show that's in some ways about an Instagram account and in some ways about, you know, turning a very complicated city into a setting. And I think one of the questions it's getting at is, you know, authenticity. What does it mean to be authentic? Even in uh, Gabrielle's case, like, I think the show wants to argue that he's in some ways an artist, right? And he's having to sort of reconcile with what it means to be an artist in the culinary world when you need funding for your restaurant and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And you can make the same argument about the people purveying fashion and compromises they make to be commercially successful and all these kinds of things. But the show never actually explores any of that in detail. It hints at it and it's sort of aware of it at the margins, but it just never goes into depth. Yeah. Uh-huh. And that's what's so frustrating. And so it's like these, this sort of like meta emptiness to it, where it's like levels and levels of anti-depth. And I think I would actually be fine with that if it were just operating on those terms. And again, it's, it's interesting, Sophie. I had such a different read. Like for me, the first season was just so much worse with this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But it just seems like, Spencer, you mentioned all the stereotypes. And it just feels like, especially in the first season, every character was simply a collection of stereotypes. 
archetypes. You know, Emily was sort of, for all her kind of personal emptiness, was in other ways like a very bluntly characteristic American, you know, optimistic, works too hard, rugged individualist, you know, all the sort of collections of stereotypes about what it means to be American, like that was who she was, you know. And by the same count, a lot of the French characters were just collections of stereotypes about French people and what they're like. Um, and if it were just, if the show itself were just sort of operating on the surface level of things where they were thinking about, you know, branding and fashion and image and all that kind of stuff, I would have been fine with it. But the fact that they, it's, it felt like they wanted to have it both ways. They wanted it to be this frilly escapist concoction of a show that you shouldn't read it too much into because that would just be a mistake. You're not meeting the show on its terms. But on the other hand, they wanted to make it a referendum about what it means to be American, what it means to be French, how those two <laughs> cultures should interact. And again and again, it was Emily winning the day. At least in my read, it was people sort of admitting to Emily that she had things right. You know, she had the best idea for the marketing campaign. Like her winning, you know, optimistic attitude was what French people should adopt. It makes me happy. Work makes you happy? Yes. I mean, it's, it's why I'm here for work. So to me, just the fact that it was trying to sort of have it both ways and operating on these levels of morality itself, like these basic questions of how people should live, you know, sexually, um, work-wise, et cetera, et cetera. Like it just made it really hard for me to take the show as just a frilly concoction and bit of escapism. And that was the problem I had. I hear what you're saying, but I think it's a little strong to say this show is trying to be a referendum on anything or trying to make a statement about what it is to be American or to be French in, in, in any sort of forceful way. It is absolutely about those things. But, you know, we live like in this era when, you know, we're talking about culture all the time in our political discourse. We talk about it in terms of tribal identity and the way that culture is wound up with capitalism and racism. And there's like a heavy lens on discussions of culture right now. And this show, for better or, you know, maybe for worse, but is kind of like dialing that discussion back a few decades and is just like, what if culture is just sort of this layer on top of our human experiences and sort of like lightly flavors our lives? And what if we have a kind of comedy of manners about, you know, someone who is a little too into their work and thinks their work is their whole identity coming into this culture that is built around you know, you work to live. And then lightly kind of just like having fun with that <laughs> uh, and, and not treating it like the end of the world and not treating it like this gargantuan culture clash, but as this kind of like balancing act where one side learns a little from the other side and the other side learns a little from the other. And I, I agree with that season one felt like kind of bizarrely pro-American or like chauvinistic about America where Emily doesn't really seem to have to um, learn too many lessons and everyone kind of comes to her point of view that you should just make an Instagram poll out of everything. But in season two, it's exactly what you're saying, Megan, where she's having to learn her lessons. But, but without it being life or death, it, it, it doesn't, <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter. And that's, that's part of what I think allows the show to be the frilly concoction that it can be. You know, the French are very susceptible to having their culture interpreted by foreigners and shoved down their throats. The thing that bothers me most is that it could be so much more. And this is a show that has gargantuan budgets, one imagines. Like, they take over the whole of Gallery Lafayette to stage a perfume scene uh, with, like, 300 extras. And you just think, like, with all these resources, there are people out there who would be 
dying to tell stories. And they don't have to be serious or, I mean, there's definitely a place to tell these kinds of stories that are just entertaining and fun and escapist. But at the same time, like, they don't have to be as sort of surreally, strangely bad as, as this one is. Like, it really does feel to me like, conceptually, there's just a bunch of ideas being batted around in like a game of televisual ping pong and I mean there's like oh you know culture clash is kind of there and like the anxiety of the gen z people in the workforce trying to work hard to hustle because they have no other choices because capitalism is kind of there and and uh, like there's all these really interesting ideas about gender like back in season one you may have forgotten when Emily found out that the <laughs> the vagina in French was masculine as a noun <laughs> And she went on her rant about, do you know, Spencer <laughs> does not remember this. I know, I remember. She says, your language is so effed up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but in a subtle way that, that doesn't <laughs> condemn either culture. There's all these hints at how it could be a better, smarter, still fluffy, still white, lightweight, still very entertaining show. But But it's just so poorly executed and there's so much missing in it for me and especially in season two like season one at least had the formulaic structure of a recognizable television show you know there's an arc there's a woman there's an introduction there's characters there's a fish out of water storyline there's you know the romantic plot with gabriel mm -hmm. and the complication with his lover and you know there's trips and there's career aspirations and, and season two has just been very wacky structurally like we've had the French class, that scene where Alfie burped in Emily's face, I, I don't, I still don't understand. That still troubles me. Um, the scene where Camille's father, who is yeah. a champagne entrepreneur, slices off his thumb, champagne. <laughs> There's the scene where Jeremy O. Harris, for no real reason, says it's the gay spray of Saint-Tropez, which has been stuck in my head on a loop for about three weeks now. There's just... There's a lot going on. None of it makes sense. I what? am perturbed by it. I am cringing through everything. I'm not enjoying the clothes, um, which which <laughs> bring me, brings me back to the subject of fashion because Sex and the City, you know, I, I came of age with that show. I watched it not always loving the outfits so far, but at least respecting them as things that human beings who are creative and stylish might occasionally wear. Whereas Emily in Paris, I don't know what to say. There's a lot of golf gloves this season. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of Kangol. There is a scene where Mindy wears a fuchsia houndstooth tube dress with matching gloves for no good reason. That's, it's it's just kind of baffling. And I wish that I was wearing a bucket hat that I could just throw up in. Yeah, there's a lot of bucket hats. I mean, what did you what do you guys think of the fashion? Are you enjoying it? Is it aesthetically troubling to you? Does it seem like Barbie dolls being dressed up? I think BuzzFeed had a really good description of it that was 90s Barbie meets Jojo Siwa. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not an expert on the subject, but the fashion is wacky, outrageous, and horrifying, for sure. I mean, uh, <laughs> it's like, I mean, these patterns that she puts on her body are like, like a magic eye picture from the 90s. <laughs> it's just, it's overload. But that's, is that not the the whole thing with Patricia Field, the stylist for this show and for Sex and the City, where the clothes are not meant to represent really anything about how people actually dress, but they are sort of like a fantastical romp through an expensive closet with emphasis on engaging the eyeballs. Like, and that's it. Like, I, that, that's my understanding of her deal. I, I would agree with that, yes, but I would also say it made more sense in the context of Sex and City, which was late 90s, early aughts, very much mired in consumerism labels. Emily in Paris, I don't know, it just feels out 
of date to me now. When you think about how people actually dress, how like the youth actually dress, <laughs> like when you see people wearing fast fashion and being creative and recycling clothes and, and wearing vintage in so many interesting ways. And then Emily comes along, bonjour, in her like bright yellow bucket hat du jour. I don't know. It just, it just seems troubling to me in, in a way I can't quite describe aesthetically, politically. It's not you personally. It's everything you stand for. You're the enemy of luxury because luxury is defined by sophistication and taste, not by Emily in Paris. You know, the show sort of pointing out the arbitrariness of taste, right? Like, you know, taste is sometimes a cudgel yeah. that can be used against people. And I think there is something kind of interestingly tautological almost about the outfits in the show in the sense of if Emily in Paris says this is fashion, if the show says it's interesting, if the show says it's worth looking at, that in itself becomes kind of a referendum, you know, like, and I think there is something interesting about just sort of pointing out how arbitrary fashion itself can be in this show that is so much about the fashion world and sort of how these fantasies are manufactured. My thing about the fashion too is that it also makes no sense. I mean, the whole point of Emily, we're told in season one, is that she's ringarde. She's uh, le bitch basic. You know, she <laughs> she is your consummate oat milk latte sipping yoga pants wearing um, help quick. Other cliches. I think you got <laughs> Yeah, I think those are it. <laughs> no, no, I mean, like, I'm sure she has a dog who she loves a lot. I mean, no, but you know what I mean? Like, all the She all might the enjoy long of, walks on the beach. Yeah, all the ideas of the basic American woman are embodied within Emily. And yet the fashion is, it's its like a toddler getting lost in Vivian Westwood's closet, you know? It, it just gets yeah. to the point that nothing in the show is really fully conceived. Nothing in the show like really makes sense. It's chaos. It's absolute chaos. Right. She's basic and she's tacky. And those are two related concepts, but they're not necessarily the same thing. And... In the world of the show, you know, the French people are dressed a little more reservedly, but they're dressed finely. And the way that she is dressed, which is like this clownfish, is, you know, <laughs> making it extremely plain what the show is doing, which is like, yeah, like she is the tacky Ringard problem in this samey, chic zeitgeist. And you know, the, the whole thing about the show is like playing with that tension. You may mock us, but the truth is you need us. Without basic bitches like me, you wouldn't be fashionable. I have to say, in season two, I've really enjoyed Kate Walsh's character, Madeline, Emily's boss, coming mm -hmm. to Paris in her crazy tight leopard print, heavily pregnant outfits. And I did laugh at the fact that she is always eating all the time. <laughs> She's got constant carrots on the go. And that felt to me like the best kind of satire that this show's ever done. But generally, I just, this idea that it's got anything to say meaningfully about any kind of culture clash if if it does i haven't been able to discern it yet and i think anything we interpret from it is based more on us than on the, the well, subjects that the show is giving us it that's gives you that oh no go ahead Megan. no no well i no i was just gonna say i mean i think that's true i, I would never want to defend this show as excessively self-aware <laughs> or anything <laughs> along those lines but i do think i mean one of the interesting decisions that was made for season two was to create not just one but two foils for emily in the sense of Kate Walsh's character, Madeline, and then Alfie, who are two different iterations of the 
stereotype of the foreigner in Paris, right? Like Madeline, that character, like absorbs a lot of the obnoxiousness that Emily had had in the first season. And Mm -hmm. Emily now, by contrast, is a lot more nuanced, a lot more respectful. So it seems like the show's writers were sort of aware of the criticism, perhaps, of the first season and, you know, deflected a lot of it onto that character, who I agree. I mean, the actress Kate Walsh did such a good job in that role. Oh, oh. we should launch in conjunction with the Festival du Camp. Actually, it's pronounced Cannes. Oh, you say potato, I say potato. <laughs> no, I don't say either of those things. The character of Alfie, too, who was just, you know, so unimpressed by Paris. And Emily could sort of convince him that Paris is actually a wonderful place, but not for the reasons you think, but for much more intimate, nuanced kind of reasons. And so I think the introduction of those characters was the show attempting to be a little bit more complex in its uh, portrayal of things and to maybe take a little bit of the pressure off of Emily to be the only foreigner. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but again, I wouldn't want to defend those portrayals as, you know, really nuanced or anything like that. But I think that they were trying to nod to a little bit of complexity with them. Well, I am glad you brought up Alfie because there has been some discussion of late, (laughs) some controversy over the show's use of uh, cultural stereotypes. And I think the government of Ukraine in particular is very (laughs) upset about the character of Emily's uh, Ukrainian friend from her French class who goes to Galerie Lafayette with her and tries to steal all the handbags. Um, And to my knowledge, the British government are probably too busy with everyone having COVID and Brexit. (laughs) Uh, to care much about Alfie, but I was annoyed that (laughs) there is a British character and his only qualities are beer and football and hating the French. I mean, uh, talk about stereotypes. You don't really get much further than that. I'm English, obviously. Born and raised in London. I like football and I work at a bank. What else is there that you need to know? Yeah, absolutely. Alfie is a stereotype of British blokes and I see if, if you are offended by that, Sophie, that is that is completely <laughs> valid. Um, but I don't find myself hating really any characters other than the show. Other than there's like a kind of um, there are a couple like middle aged Frenchmen with slick back hair who I can't tell apart who all like hit on Emily <laughs> and like they generally like I, I just don't need them in the show. But there's something sort of like the like gentle to me about the way that it is doing cringe comedy like. Like, you are absolutely horrified a lot of times by the things that are happening on screen, but it's never about the person. It's about, like, their naivete or the things they embody, but, like, it doesn't, I don't know, it doesn't feel spiteful to me, does it, to you guys? No, but I, that's because, again, there there are no people beneath the outfits. Really <laughs> right, maybe anything. that's what it is. <laughs> but, like, in, in season, you know, the first, see the idea that the show is not, like, self-aware at all. Like, the, like the first episode of the first season, there's that scene where her colleague Luke comes up to her on the motorbike, and she's alone at a cafe. And, you know, they have very simplistic theme-setting conversation where Luke says that, America is all about working, and Emily says, well, I think it's a balance. Exactly, a balance. And I think the Americans have the wrong balance. You live to work. We work to live. It's just going back and forth on this question without, um, I mean, I keep saying that there's no like real point of view, but it's just, it's just checking it. It's just like feeling it out. Um, but then I, I do think it kind of is moving towards complicating itself and maybe ending up having to say something at the end of season two when Madeline does come in and she is a representative for the corporate bosses 
in America who own the she-she marketing firm that Emily came to work for. And Sylvie has been basically running the place for a long time. Seems like she's been doing a good job at maintaining these relationships with very prestigious clients and keeping them happy. But she's not feeding the bottom line enough. She's not charging them enough. She's building uh, the brand based on personal relationships. She's valuing prestige and quality over the bottom line. And so the American comes in and really takes a harsh stance on that. So there is like a culture clash that is about something more than just like how people interact in a room and whether you can talk about work at parties. Like it's about money and it's about the things we value in a society. And I will be interested to see how that plays out. Right now you're rooting for the French side of that. And I, you know, I would say rightly so, but this show is still just kind of circling these ideas without having to come down. And if it did come down, I don't think it would be successful. It would be, you know, a think piece and not like a comedy. The thing I wanted to bring up with relation to Darren Starr's other show on the air right now, and just like that on HBO, which is a continuation of Sex and the City, but set in the present day, post-COVID, the women are in their 50s now, and they are essentially, in in my take of the show, being punished for all their previous sins in very slow and very awkward fashion. Um, As in, the show is confronting everything that Sex and City has been criticized for since it went off the air. It's blind spots, it's whiteness, it's privilege, it's obliviousness to any of the issues really that New Yorkers lived with while Carrie and co were enjoying their three-hour brunches in the cafe that we never really learned anything about. Uh, And so I think the thing that's interesting to think about, and you made me realize this once, Emily in Paris is a show that kind of ignores all that in a way that Sex and the City Mm -hmm. did for a long time. Um, Like it has characters of color, but their color is incidental really to anything. Um, It just is. There's no discussion of the fact that, you know, it might be problematic for Sylvie to charge a firm less because she's sleeping with the owner or to, you know, not hire Ellen von Unworth for a client's account because she wants her boyfriend to get the job. Like there's no discussion of any of that. It just, it just happens. It's fine. Um, Whereas and just like that, I think is really making its characters, (laughs) do a lot of self-flagellation in terms of Mm -hmm. uh, really coming to terms with the sins of the past. I think related to that, I've only seen also the first episode of And Just Like That, but I mean, when it comes to the second season of Emily in Paris, it tried, I think, to sort of almost punish Emily in some ways. Like, do you remember the scene where Mindy lets her know that she has been using dog shampoo? (laughs) (laughs) You've been using dog shampoo, sis. What? Really? Well, I can't understand the label. How was I meant to know? Well, there's a dog on the bottle. And there's a woman holding the dog. And she has shiny hair. So does the dog. You know, it's an easy, cheap joke, you know. I am sad that I am naughty. And, you know, all those kinds of things. Or uh, uh, Camille calls her um, an illiterate sociopath. That one <laughs> These are all the and, best you, moments of season two no, that you're listening. The they're, they're, they're funny jokes, but it's also, I mean, I think they're, they are moments where, like, the show is really having fun at Emily's expense, almost to a level of punishing her, it seems like, in some ways, or wanting to sort of take her down a peg and sort of, like, reckon with its own failures through the character of Emily. That's 100% what's happening. But isn't that what we, like, everyone said they wanted after season one? Like, this girl needs to learn a lesson and, like, have her humility checked a little bit? I mean, none of these things are, like, devastating, and she never, ever seems 
really on her heels at all. But it is just like little things in the universe of the show is not letting her get away with complete impunity all the time. Would you guys watch the show if it wasn't on Netflix? If it was on a slightly harder to find or even gasp <gasps> network television? <laughs> no way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no way. That's, but but does, that's, I, I think it actually was, check me on this, but I think it actually was originally going to be on Paramount. And then it made the switch over to Netflix. So we had an alternate world where it would have been a, a network show. Like I'm thinking back to your review, Spencer, where, you know, if you read the show as about taste, you know, and as about the things that sort of inform what we consume and why we consume it, like I think the tautology there is kind of interesting because it seems like we're saying we're watching Emily in Paris because Emily in Paris is there to watch, you know, and um, it speaks to the power that Netflix has, which is analogous to the power that, you know, Cadol has or, you know, all of the brands that Emily is working with has where they are simply there and they are so big in their there-ness that we in some ways have to pay attention which is not really to defend the show, but I think it is an interesting fact of the show that it's sort of making its own arguments in such a kind of implicit way. The customer is always right. No, here, the customer is never right. Well, maybe I'll educate the chef a little bit about customer service. You think you're going to change the entire French culture by sending back a steak? One knock on the show is that she is so ignorant that it is beyond belief. <laughs> yeah. I think there are even like very privileged people who haven't really traveled and really don't know what they don't know. But I agree that there's something about the way that Emily comes off where it, she doesn't seem like that kind of person and then she completely is that kind of person. That's what I hated so much, I think, about the first season, um, or at least one of the elements was, it's not just that she's ignorant, it's that the show treats her ignorance as charming. It's amazing, isn't it? The entire city looks like ratatouille. Like the fact that she is still saying bonjour <laughs> After however many months, it, I mean, I get that it takes a while to learn a language. That's fine. She's trying. She's going to her classes. She's very earnest about that. That's great. But, you know, just these small nods that she could make to the culture that she's a part of that she refuses to do, you know, like just little things like that are what get me. And, and, and again, it's the show, especially in the first season, I do think it changed in the second, but in the first season, the show really did seem to be arguing, ha ha, isn't this funny? Like she's so clueless and yet people love her anyway, cause she's so charming and her ignorance is amusing and da da da. I, I know we shouldn't overread too much into a show like this, but I mean, this is a moment where ignorance is directly dangerous, you know? And so to, to just see in curiosity being praised in that way, just it, it left a very bad taste in my mouth. Hmm. To go back to what you were saying, Spencer, about the cultural stereotyping, maybe, wait, what were you talking about? Sorry, I just lost my train of I wasn't of talking about anything. No, you were, you were. You were talking, oh, uh, about Emily being a dum-dum who may or may not exist in her life. <laughs> It, it, one of the things that makes me mad about the show is there are these moments of really kind of funny, acute satire. Like I'm thinking of Luke in the scene where it's, you know, 95 degrees outside, and but they won't have air conditioning because, you know, Parisians don't trust it, which, you know, I spent a summer in Paris once. It's extremely true. But I also know a French man who wouldn't get Wi-Fi for the longest time because he was worried about the vapors. <laughs> so huh. There are these moments that are really kind of funny in that way. And then so much of it is just lazy dreck. And it makes you, it makes me even madder because I, you really see what a sharper kind of execution of this kind of project could be. I mean, it's exactly what you're saying. It's, it is actually much funnier than it gets credit for. And sometimes it's even worse than you could even imagine. <laughs> like, I love... Just like life. 
uh, in this season, there's that like uh, there's that one episode where there's a running gag where Emily keeps calling her coworkers when she's on vacation, and all of her colleagues are just like, "You cannot be working on the weekend; it's illegal." And <laughs> and they're just like really offhanded, and it is, and it's like an actual cultural legal difference. Don't do anything; it's illegal to work on the weekend in France. Okay, well now you're just being dramatic. It's just funny for each of them to kind of like bring that up in their own way, but at the same time, she is on this inane quest to stop the ex-girlfriend of the guy that she likes from sleeping with. Uh, a random guy that she meets on vacation as if that like matters and it's just so dumb. So yeah, I mean, those things are both in the show, but that's kind of, I think, what allows it to work in the way it does. I agree with that. Woo. (laughs) No, me too. Can I also she, just say my, my favorite joke, because it is just so absurd, is the the running gag about how the representatives of leeks really <laughs> hate potatoes. <laughs> and I don't, there might be more context that I'm missing. I don't know. But I just find it so funny that the leek people have decided that there's a vegetable that is below theirs that they just have to irrationally hate. I'll have a potato leek soup. <laughs> no potato. Why do people always toss in a dirty old potatoes? The fact that the show made not one but several jokes about that, I really appreciated. Same. That was an amazing scene. (laughs) You know what's in my fridge right now? Potato leek soup. Love it. Before we wrap up, I just wanted to come back to this idea of the hate watch. I personally don't enjoy to watch shows that I hate um, (laughs) because the energy just feels like too much expenditure in this year of our Lord 2027 or whatever it is. Um, do you both hate watch shows? What are they? What is the pleasure that you derive in watching shows that are so bad they are bad or so good they are bad or something? You know, we live in this era of quote-unquote optimism where the high is the low and the low is the high and everything is fine and let people enjoy things and watch Marvel movies and get really into Taylor Swift because she's an artist and not just a manufactured pop creation. You know, like, and in that context, yeah, I think... There's no reason to apologize if you really blast through Emily in Paris and talk about it with your friends and uh, get to turn your mind off for a couple hours from it. Like there, it is playing with cultural ideas that um, it's not doing it in maybe the most responsible and politically helpful way. But I, I really don't think it's like I don't think it's hurting the world all that much, and um, it doesn't make me feel dirty in the way that some like like truly hate watching something for me is like watching uh an exploitative reality show you know i, I mm-hmm. hate dating shows yeah. i hate mm-hmm. um i hate true crime shows I, I, I like like stuff like that i think is really like evil um and i don't think that emily rises to that level and it doesn't make me feel gross it just makes me feel like how the hell did they get me to sit through this and enjoy it as much <laughs> as i did so yeah i think that's where i'm at with hate watching Yeah, I agree with that, Spencer. I think there are a lot of shows that I, yeah, just feel wrong in some way, whatever that might mean for an individual viewer. And if it feels that way for you, there's no need to watch it, right? That's been my approach to things. Um, But I definitely also at the same time have a lot of shows that would not be by any stretch considered good art that have, you know, delighted me, helped me sort of escape things that have really gotten me through the pandemic. I'm a huge fan of Below Deck Mediterranean, for example, which might be an exploitative reality show, 
but because it doesn't feel that way to me, I've been able to just sort of treat it as an escapist joy. And I will sit down for any marathon that Bravo <laughs> cares to give me at any moment. Um, so yeah, I think I, I I don't hate watch just because who has the time, but I do definitely watch shows that are bad, you know, in an artistic sense, um, because they can also be delightful. Yes, along those lines, I've recently been rewatching Downton Abbey and enjoying it yeah. very much, while also cringing, uh, but not not as hard <laughs> as, as while watching Emily. And I, I do think you're right, Spencer. Like it, this is not a show that is actively bad for the culture, TM, nor is it actively good for the culture. It's just nothing. It just <laughs> exists. It, it, it exists and we, we live with it and it's it all, distracts yeah. people from the chaos outside, I suppose. Also, like things can be good and have flaws. Like yeah. that is most things. That is everything. And I think Emily is good at what it does and it does have extremely pronounced flaws and your mileage varies, but I don't think it makes it bad that it has the flaws it does. Like, and I think that the fact that it like works in the way it does, like to me, actually, I would not call the show bad. I think it's good, but a little naughty <laughs> or something. Like, <laughs> it's good, like but a little shitty, grammar. like or something like that. You know, like <laughs> I just don't want to end on this note of Spencer calling Emily in Paris good, but I think good, I but have shitty. To. <laughs> because <laughs> good just it just doesn't feel like it is. anyway um, before we wrap up i wanted to ask you which of your minor emily in paris characters would you want to work on a savoir branding campaign with and if no one has one i can start Go it for would it. be Why for me start, yeah. emily's french teacher that woman is a saint, oh, yeah. most long-suffering queen, amazing, <laughs> impeccable taste in jumpsuits, doesn't get riled by Alfie. And yeah, I like her. I think she's competent. She she and I would create a campaign for potatoes, maybe, or something like that. <laughs> no potatoes. No potatoes. No potatoes. I, I want to cheat a little bit. I hope you don't mind. But I would say both Julien and uh -huh. Luke. Because oh, I, I, I just them. think that they're such a good pair together. I mean, one of the things I really liked about this season is that they got a lot more airtime. They just got to be more full flesh characters than they were in the first season. And and I thought that was great. And they're each so kind of quirky. Like, I love Julien's fashion. I love Luke's kind of generalized weirdness. I haven't quite figured him out, but I just, I love that he's so kind of quirky, you know, because he's actually, I think, an exception to the rule of these characters sort of operating as stereotypes. Like there seems to be more to him and I want to find out um, more about him. So, so yeah, yeah, that was, those would be my two as a duo. He definitely doesn't have Wi-Fi because of the vapors. Um, <laughs> Megan, you can go and work at Savoir with Juliana Luke. <laughs> oh, parfait. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, can I work with Mindy? Sure, Ooh. yeah. I don't know if she's shown herself to have much aptitude for things beyond singing and being a great friend to Emily, but she comes in in the first episode of this series, and I think like when she arrives as just like this nanny in the park who strikes up a conversation with Emily, you're like, oh wait, there's there is a human being on this show. Like she to me seems like the the realest gal. Like she she gives off more of an inner life. And she's also super no-nonsense, no and she makes fun of Emily while also loving her. And, uh, yeah, I feel like that is my relationship with the show. And so, yeah, Mindy's my uh, my collaborator. Well, your project will be very musical. Congratulations. <laughs> that 
does it for the show. The review is produced by Kevin Townsend with help from AC Valdez. Our art is by Charlie Lemignon. I'm Sophie Gilbert. Thank you, Spencer. Thank you. Thank you, Megan. Thank you, Sophie. No merci from either of us. Merci. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I'll do it. I'll, I'll say goodbye as Emily. I'll be en tot. <laughs> <laughs> Bonjour tout le monde, bonjour mes amis. Aujourd'hui, nous allons discuter la série Netflix Emily in Paris. No, I'm just kidding, guys. I just wanted to throw that out there.